Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Nova Scotia has erupted over lobster. We'll bring you up to date on what they're fighting over. Changes are coming to your Blue Box program because right now only 30% of what you put in there actually gets recycled. And are Canadians still interested in the Wee Charity scandal? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. My dad has gone overboard with the Halloween decorations this year. He even stole my crutches for the front lawn display. Then he told me to dress up and crawl through it all when it was dark. As if I wanted tips. Send help! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Honestly, I have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes on the air as we uh, begin uh, week number 20. No, it's 32. Uh, or maybe it's 72. Who knows? Uh, hey, you know, it's a rainy Monday and um, it is what it is, folks. You know what? I heard I heard this whole thing. Have I said, have I introduced everybody yet? No, let's get the important stuff first. Um, I heard somebody say this uh, the other day on one of the news shows, and they said we're in. it's like being in the seventh inning of a baseball game. I thought that was a great analogy. You know, uh, although it could go extra innings, we, we don't know. However, uh, either way, we're sort of on the last half of this. If we take into consideration that we'll probably have a vaccination uh, by the middle of next year. Does that make you feel better? All right. I tried. All right. You've no doubt heard and seen what has been going on on the East Coast and uh, in regard to uh, Nova Scotia fisheries and and, uh, the violence that has unfortunately erupted. Now opposition is calling for an emergency meeting into this dispute. Uh, What exactly is at the heart of the issue and why has it become increasingly divisive and violent? Let's bring in Patty Doyle Bedwell, Associate Professor in Indigenous Studies at Dalhousie University, lawyer and public speaker on Indigenous issues end with us now patty thank you for the time hope you're doing well i am thank you for having me uh all right we've uh, delved into this a little bit uh in the first half hour of the show but uh what i'm understanding is this is an incredibly complex issue how do you explain this to the average canadian well the way that i explain it is that basically the Mi'kmaq people have a treaty right to a moderate livelihood so that we have a treaty right that's been protected by the Supreme Court of Canada, and therefore it's protected by the Constitution, which is the Supreme Law of Canada, and we have the right to fish for a moderate livelihood. And so that's how I explain it. And then people will often ask, well, what does it mean that it's constitutionally protected? And what it means is that the Supreme Court of Canada has identified fishing for a moderate livelihood as one of our treaty rights. So and treaty rights are protected under the Constitution, which is the supreme law of Canada. So we have the right to fish for a moderate livelihood. And so the issues that are coming up right now have to do with situations like what is the definition of moderate livelihood and what control do the Mi'kmaq people have in establishing their own fisheries regulations and their fisheries quotas and things like that. So uh, the conflict right now is a definition of moderate livelihood. So is this, obviously they're competing for stock. What, are, what yeah. is that, the conflict, the heart of the conflict here? Well, the thing, um, in my view, the heart of the conflict is that the non-native fishers do not want the Mi'kmaq people to fish for lobster outside of the season. So technically the season hasn't begun yet in Nova Scotia, but the Mi'kmaq people have chosen uh, to fish right now. Um, So that's one thing. The other thing, of course, is that the non-native fishers feel that this is taking away from their livelihood, and they're concerned about that. They've also expressed concern about conservation of the lobster stock, Um, but that's um, some biologists at Dalhousie have indicated that that's not really an issue. So conservation isn't really an issue here for the lobster stock. So the non-native fishers are really in a 
spot where they're saying, we don't want the Mi'kmaq to exercise their right to a moderate livelihood because it's going to take away from us. And we do not want the Mi'kmaq people to fish outside of the season. And we don't want to respect, basically, the treaty right that I just explained. They don't want to do that. And they're concerned about conservation. But the other day, they killed at least 200 lobsters that were in the lobster pound. So it's hard to see how conservation is an issue here. But Well, if, if conservation isn't an issue, why is there a season and, an, and a non-season? Uh, is, there, is the reason for having a season is to allow the stock to replenish? Part of it, of course, is that, um, to have a season so the stocks can replenish. The other thing is that there's certain, I'm not a biologist, but, you know, lobsters um, have babies at certain times. And, but there isn't really um, a conservation issue in the sense that the lobster stocks aren't endangered at all in any way, shape, or form. And the Mi'kmaq people, when they're fishing, they, you know, there were some arguments that we had taken lobsters that were that had eggs but that's not true like we tend to we will respect the stock and uh, provide stewardship over that stock so you know because for us to decimate the stock which is basically impossible since there's so few of us but if we decimated the stock we're hurting ourselves right so it's not in our best interest to decimate that stock or take lobsters that have eggs or that are having babies that's not how we've ever operated so i you know there's some argument that part of this fishery dispute is pure and unadulterated racism against us and uh, so when you see the violence that's happening it's hard uh, to see that it's not racism and violence against us for exercising our treaty rights but yes, um, the seasons are important the dfo regulations are important and uh, protection of the stock is certainly important well, usually the indigenous community is the first to draw attention to that. Um, yeah. you, usually <laughs> it's it's the indigenous community that is more environmentally aware and sound on issues like this. So why would they want to be fishing outside of season then? Well, because they've made an assessment that this is not going to hurt the stock. So they have taken exercise and control over their over our own fishery. So that's another issue. I think that... Uh, you know, I think the DFO would, and the non-native fishers would love it if um, the Mi'kmaq people would adhere to, as they say, the rules. But then we have a right to self-determination as well, and we have a right to um, establish our processes of fisheries. And the sad part is, is that, you know, and the other thing, well, government has not said anything about what a moderate livelihood is. So when we look at the concept of moderate livelihood that was put out by the Supreme Court of Canada, nobody really knows what that means. So does that mean that we get one-eighth of the catch? Does that mean we get one-twelfth of the catch? Does that mean we're only allowed to make $50,000 a year or $20,000 a year or $800 a week? Or well, what does it mean? And nobody really knows what that is so that now from what i understand this has been in place since 1999 is that accurate that how come we're just discussing this now it's like 20 years ago yeah fine. how how come how come how come hang on uh, just how how come the the quote of uh moderate livelihood is is just an issue now or is it just coming to public attention now why is why is this happening now in your view it's coming to public attention now um it's certainly been uh since marshall was decided 20 years ago it's certainly been a discussion um, with DFO, and when I worked with uh, my band on fisheries issues, that was certainly um, a topic of discussion, but there's never been any kind of agreement or any kind of uh, definition of what that really means. And if you go back to the case, they talked about, um, the Supreme Court of Canada talked about this idea of uh, basic necessaries of life, and so that's why they interpreted that to mean a moderate livelihood. And so when the Supreme Court of Canada came out with their decision, the government was kind of left flat-footed. They didn't, and they have yet to come to some kind of agreement with the Mi'kmaq people on what that means. And so it makes it very difficult to assert our treaty right to fish if we're not able to determine how much money we can make, what we can take as far as the quotas. The other thing that's important to remember is that we're such a small percentage of the commercial fishery. Um, 
in as far as lobsters go. And there's no way that um, anything that we do is going to decimate that stock. There's only a few boats down there. Um, and then let's not talk about the corporate fishery that happens, like Clearwater and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot. Of, but again, uh, you know, we, we certainly know there's a balance between industry yeah. and, and the indigenous community. But it seems to be yeah. what at the heart of this is com- uh, conservation of stock and, you know, f- I guess fishing in and out of season. So are you saying that th- that the other side's issue of conservation of stock is not a valid point? I don't think it's a valid point because yeah. they killed 200 lobsters the other day. They took them. Well, again, just because two hundred thousand lobsters were killed in a in a terrible situation that happened, that has nothing yeah. to do. That has no bearing on the argument of whether it's 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 hard on conservation. It's very unfortunate that the stock was lost that way. Of course, it is. Yeah, but that is no bearing. That is no bearing on whether this is good for the environment or not. Well, I think it does have a bearing if you have non-native fishers um, deliberately destroying. Um, lobster stock that they uh, profess to have an idea about conservation that they want to protect the conservation. Yeah, but those were already stock. caught. Those were already caught. Let's be serious, they Patty. Were they were already caught, caught and they would have been sold. They would have been sold anyway. So they're already out of the water. Again, I, I'm not sure how the destruction of property and such has anything to do with the stock. But so again, well, uh, just trying that. to get to the heart of this issue. It, it's so for for you, it's it's not about stock at, at all. It's it's, it's not just about, about conservation. The Dalhousie biologists have already asserted that the conservation of the stock um, is not an issue with uh, given the small a number of fishers that we have. So that's not an issue. And the second thing is, is that the lobster stock has never been considered endangered. And this came up way back with, uh, you know, 20 years ago when the Marshall decision came out. And, um, of course, one of the things that can um, infringe upon a treaty right is a public issue such as conservation. So, you know, trying to make the argument about conservation in a situation where it's not really valid because the biologists Mm -hmm. have said clearly that this is not um, an endangered species. And we have a lower number of fishers, Mi'kmaq fishers, that are taking um, lobsters, but not in numbers enough to do any damage to the long-term uh, sustainability of the lobsters. So at the so, end of the day here, a definition of moderate livelihood is what's needed. Is that right, well, Patty? I think so, yes. I think yeah. they have to determine what that means. And then I think that the um, you know the federal government has a significant responsibility to play here in terms of negotiating what that means and negotiating um, with, uh, well, they have to negotiate with us <clears throat> and get our consent over what that means. And they have to talk to us about that. And they have to be able to um, work with us, and they have to be able to bring the non-native fishers to the table. I mean, the Premier of Nova Scotia said this morning, I mean, he just blasted DFO for not doing very much. And Bernadette Jordan, who's the Minister of Fisheries, she's from Nova Scotia, and she has made very, uh, she's made a lot of comments about the violence not being acceptable, et cetera, et cetera, but she hasn't made any real efforts yet. And Oh, we've just... Uh- all right, we've just lost uh, Patty Doyle Bedwell, Associate Professor in Indigenous Studies, Dalhousie University. Let's get the other side of the story. Martin uh, Mallet in is here, or sorry, Martin Mallet is here, Executive Director, Coalition of Atlantic and Quebec Fishing Organization, and on the line now. Martin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, thank you. Yes, I am. So, what is your organization's thoughts on where we are in, in New Brunswick and, or sorry, Nova Scotia, and what is going on? Well, I mean, the, the situation in southwest Nova Scotia is uh, is extremely uh, difficult, like uh, we've all seen in the media. Um, but this this situation on the ground, uh, the frustration down there has been building, and and this this needs to be understood by uh, by people that aren't on the ground. This this has been building for many years, right? And um, I mean, we've been uh, sending some letters out and and and. Uh, communications out to Blair's office and Minister Jordan's office for over a year now, uh, warning them that they need to step up to the plate and, and try to put the conditions in place so that these uh, these um, uh, this violence does not happen. But as you can see, uh, they've they've not moved on it, and it's been uh, it's, it's too late. Uh, we've I mean we've actually not even had a response uh, to to these letters and requests. So year. what? So what is the issue here? Help help the rest of the country understand what the concern is. 
So uh, at the very minimum, uh, this is a, a fisheries management issue, right? And it's uh, it started 21 years ago after uh, the uh, the initial uh, Marshall decision response, and then there was a, a second um, response from uh, uh, on to the to the Marshall decision from uh, the Supreme Court. And uh, there's a there's a terminology uh, in the second decision that talks about the right for a moderate livelihood for First Nations on the East Coast. So Mi'kmaq, Maliseet. And um, no no fishermen organization uh, are against giving access to the fisheries to First Nations. Uh, on the contrary, in the past 20 years, we've been part of, uh, of many programs to try to, uh, to help uh, some of these bands uh, integrate the commercial fishery. Now, what's going on now is that the actual definition of the term moderate livelihood has never been defined. And, um, I mean, there's been some negotiations with DFO and the government about uh, putting together interim agreements and uh, where they set aside their rights for 10 years, for instance, or 15 years or whatever. But uh, that definition is uh, is at the source of the problem as much for our organizations than for the First Nations, right? So is this all about overfishing? It, where does conservation play? Does conservation play a role here? What is the issue? Is, is there overfishing? Well, it, it could come to overfishing depending on where we go in terms of defining what moderate livelihood is. For instance, uh, Chief Sack uh, in the last few weeks has uh, been up front in the media saying that this is a very small effort that they're putting in right now with uh, seven. They initially came out with seven band licenses, their own moderate livelihood licenses, uh, which is unregulated by DFO, by the way. It's um, their own fishing plan. And then I think they went up to 10. But um, it's that, that in itself, and with 50 traps each, that in itself is not a huge amount of effort. The problem is, is if, if, if you set a precedent a precedent where you can fish outside of the commercial fishing season, which is typically set for conservation purposes. I mean, we don't fish in July and August uh, because, I mean, that's the time of the year when lobster reproduce, right, uh, in that area. Now, if um, if you set precedence there, and, I mean, there's, there's over 50,000 Mi'kmaq individuals uh, in Atlantic Canada. What does this mean in 5, 10 years, 20 years from now? What kind of effort? would come uh, from a moderate livelihood fishery? We don't know. So that is the big question that needs to be resolved right now is the definition of moderate livelihood and what those limits are, Absolutely. what those rules that, are. That is, the, that is the crux of the problem right there. Why did this come to a head now? Uh, well, good question. I mean, it's been a few years in the making. Uh, in southwest Nova Scotia, there were some many, many warning sound, uh, signs last year, especially uh, when uh, Shubenacadie uh, started their, I mean, their moderate livelihood, uh, quote unquote, fishery. Um, uh, things did not get violent then because I think people on the ground were still hopeful that um, discussions with the government uh, with DFO and First Nations would would evolve in the right direction, but uh, obviously they have not. And even today, there was a press conference uh, with uh, Minister Jordan and her colleagues. And um, I mean, uh, it was uh, it was unnerving to see that when she was asked a question by uh, um, by by the journalists, is, is this is it okay to fish outside of the season, outside of the commercial season? And she did she did not say no. Uh, so for me, and I, am, I have to mention also, I have a biologist background. I've been working on lobster biology for 10 years before being director here. Um, it's, it's very concerning, this type of answer. And what does it mean? We don't know. We're not at the table. There's no dialogue table right now going on with us sitting with them. As a result of what has happened over the weekend, we've certainly seen pressure from opposition to, 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 to make sure there is some sort of meeting going forward. What are the plans moving forward on this? Well, I mean, a number of things. I mean, we've we've stepped up our uh, our efforts uh, with uh, uh, lobbying directly with uh, politicians across Canada to try to uh, try to educate also uh, the background of all of this. I mean, what we've seen in the media in the last few days and weeks uh, is, is is horrendous, but it doesn't show the 
full story, right, of the, the background of why it's come up to this and the, uh, the government's responsibility uh, for letting this happen with this inaction in the last few years on this file. So now that the file is up and center uh, on the national uh, uh, front, um, I think that uh, people need to realize that this is um, it's a very complicated situation and uh, there, there, there are some, some key things that need to happen for things to go in a better direction. One of them was answered today, increasing um, uh, uh, some some RCMP presence on the ground and effectives at that level. Uh, but, I mean, that's that's just temporary, right? We need to solve uh, the, the whole situation, and that will come through dialogue, dialogue with, uh, with professional mediators. Martin Malay has been with us, Executive Director, Coalition of Atlantic and Quebec Fishing Organization, talking about what is happening in New Brunswick in regard in regard to uh, East Coast fisheries. Uh, Martin, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with all of this. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Don't forget, Bill Kelly has a great interview with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Check it out on his daily podcast. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Changes are coming to Ontario's Blue Box program. What does that mean for you and me? Let's bring in a member of uh, Provincial Parliament for uh, Elgin Middlesex, London, and Minister of the Environment, Conservation, and Parks. Jeff Yurick, he is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, also, maybe tell your boss, man. He's 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 got to he's got to give himself a break, man. He he's uh, he 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 looks exhausted standing up there today. Yeah, he goes around the clock seven days a week. We we try to tell him to you know slow down a little bit, but he's uh, pretty uh, uh, concerned to make sure we get through this pandemic, keep people safe, and keep the economy going as best as possible. All right. Well, again, best wishes to all of you on all sides uh, doing this work. I know it's uh, it's extremely time consuming and a lot of stress involved as you uh, try to make decisions for the province and such. Let's talk about the Blue Box program. How is this going to change moving forward? Well, we're uh, posted regulation for review that will transfer the uh, running of the Blue Box program uh, from the municipalities to the producers, uh, which means we'll save up uh, a bunch of money for the municipalities going forward. Uh, we're going to standardize the list of the blue box so it's the same no matter where you live in the province and add in products such as uh, paper, plastic cups, wraps and foils and cutlery, plates, uh, even the recyclable coffee pods. And uh, and lastly, uh, we're going to expand the blue box uh, in, in Ontario to include apartment buildings, long-term care homes, retirement homes, schools and, and municipal parks. So it, it's quite a big overhaul coming forward. How much of what we actually put in a blue box now ends up being recycled? Probably around 30% of what's going in the blue box uh, due to that's in- uh, contamination. Yep. That's incredible. I bet you the average Ontarian thinks it's a lot more. Oh, I think so. And, and, and the sad part is it's been like that for the past 15 to 20 years. So it, it hasn't really improved and, uh, and more and more waste is heading into the landfill. So is this still a profitable industry for, uh, for any that, that wants to jump into it? You're taking it, obviously, out of the municipality's hands and putting it into the private sector. Is there money to be made here? Oh, I think so. I think there's two ways uh, the producers would be able to make money. Is One, they could transform their packaging and their product so that it's being made of recycled product and or easy-to-recycle product. And, and lastly, uh, they'll have control to create that circular economy and expand upon uh, uh, recycled and reused uh, product into the marketplace. And I think uh, that's a potential uh, for, for huge job growth in our province and, uh, and, and new, new, new jobs uh, throughout the entire province instead of just one region. There's going to be those out there that say this is another government service that is being privatized. What's the advantage to doing this? Well, the advantage of doing this is is currently the the, pro, the the process is being run by 240 different municipalities right now. It's uh, not consistent and 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 it's and it's not helping the environment because it's stagnated. Uh, this new process will standardize, uh, uh, redo, uh, increase the efficiency of the program, and allow for innovation uh, from the producers who will be held uh, uh, totally responsible uh, under a government agency uh, uh, we call RIPRA, which is the Resource Productivity and Recovery Authority, and uh, you know, it's still going to be under the oversight of the government, but it's going to be run uh, by the producers of the waste to ensure uh, uh, it's at the run at the most efficient way possible. Does this save the municipality? 
Yeah, our calculations, it's saving municipalities across the province $135 million a year. Uh, if the municipalities continue to run this, this program, you're looking at a cost increase of 15 to $20 million a year because it's become unsustainable. So there's quite a bit of savings coming forward to municipalities as they, they move this over to the producer. You were talking about, uh, we were talking earlier that only about 30% of what we actually put in a blue box now actually gets recycled due to com- uh, contamination, yet obviously with this program you're talking about expanding the amount of things we can put in the blue box. You, you uh, brought up the, uh, the famous coffee pod there. Um, how are you expanding this and not worried about contamination? Well, we're, we're going to have a standardized list so uh, everybody will know what exactly goes into the blue box so they're not guessing. I'm sure the majority of people will uh, occasionally guess to what they're putting in their blue box. And, and secondly, um, you know, as we have the expanded list, there's more to uh, separate out and, and, and put towards recycling. And, and we feel that with a, a proper educational program during the transition uh, from the government and the producers, uh, with the help of the municipalities, we'll be able to get that right so that people are putting the right uh, content into their blue box. So when does this transition start? Well, we're doing regulation right now to finalize. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year, uh, we'll be standardizing that list over the next year. And starting in 2023, uh, the first tranche of municipalities will start to transition over to producer responsibility. And the final tranche will go in 2025. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a, some would say it's a lengthy process, but we need the producers to be prepared to move forward. Uh, there's contracts that municipalities have signed with their current providers that uh, have to come to, to a, an end. And, uh, uh, you know, we look forward for this transition. In, uh, over the next five years. Any backlash on this? Any negative response? Well, some, some have called, said we, we, we haven't done enough out there. Uh, municipalities are pretty supportive. Uh, but, you know, we're having the ha- highest uh, recycling targets in North America. We're expanding into apartment buildings and parks and long-term care homes and schools. Uh, so we are doing a, quite a bit of an expansion of the program and a transition of the cost from the taxpayer uh, to the producers. Jeff Yerrick has been with us, MPP, Elgin, Middlesex, London, and Minister of the Environment, Conservation, and Parks. And over the next couple of years, some uh, changes coming to the Blue Box program, trying to make sure that uh, more recycled material actually gets recycled and does not end up in a landfill. Jeff, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's move on. Uh, obviously, uh, as I mentioned before, I've got a daughter here uh, studying university at home online, was looking forward to going to residence, decided not to. Uh, and, you know, obviously, um, you know, a tough situation there, as it is uh, with every school, every institution. And uh, we all know that uh, we all have to live through this. Uh, but one Ontario university has revised a program that was used to help students making the transition into post-secondary school life. Can pretty, pretty tough for a kid going from uh, high school into university, especially with the uh, with grade thirteen gone. When you know, my day we had that extra year to kind of grow up, and uh, it can be a pretty tough transition. Uh, but also, you lump in with that COVID nineteen and some of the seclusion that that can bring. Uh, as you can see, there's lots of challenges for uh, university students this year. Let's bring in Patrick Kelly, Associate Director of Residence Life, University of Guelph, and with us now. Patrick, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, thanks very much for having me today. So uh, tell us basically how the House Call program works and, and what its initial objective was. Sure. So uh, traditionally, we've had uh, the majority of students here at the University of Guelph living in residence for their first year. Uh, and the program that we've run in the past for health calls involves a lot of uh, volunteer uh, staff, faculty, alumni uh, coming into our buildings for our residence buildings for about three nights in a row where they visit students across uh, our residences, knock on the door. Uh, check in, see how their first you know month and a bit of university is gone. Um, they've gone through their first midterms, maybe your assignments. Uh, they're transitioning here to to the city of Guelph and the university um, to check in, see how they how they're doing, and try to answer questions that they might have. Uh, connect them with uh, resources on campus as well, um, those kinds of things. And so uh, that's really uh, has been the you know the objective of the program. Um, a lot of it is just to, it's a, a friendly face. Uh, checking in on the students and and 
is professional staff on campus um, demonstrating that we really do care about the students outside of, you know, whatever our, our normal work capacity be, whether that's a faculty uh, member in the class or um, a staff member that works with them in different capacities as well. So this year, uh, yeah, we revised the program. We're changing it up, um, recognizing that a lot of our first-year students are uh, not on campus this year, living at home or they're renting off campus. Um, aren't getting that same opportunity to make some of those connections uh, with faculty, with staff, with other students um, in a physical sense on, on, our, on our campus. So, um, yeah, we decided we'd, we'd go virtual with it, uh, make phone calls, um, and try to have those connections. So what's it been like this year during COVID-19 as opposed to last? I mean, we can all uh, appreciate the challenge of going from high school into a university setting, but, man, you, you put a pandemic in there, uh, it can really change a lot of things. What have you seen this year that's perhaps different from the last? <laughs> well, it's... Uh... <laughs> Uh, everything. It's, I don't know if that's too much. Uh, too yeah, broad no, I hear you. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's been a, it's a huge change, and it's uh, even our students who are on campus and here at Guelph. We we don't have very many um, in our residences. We're at about a you know 550ish. Um, even all those students are their classes are um, being online and they're virtual. Uh, there's less. Um, in-person activities taking place on campus. Uh, our athletic center has guidelines, you know, letting uh, certain numbers in and those kinds of things. Our hospitality services, likewise. And um, so, yeah, the buzz on campus is definitely different. Um, it's something that's, you know, hugely missed um, as well. It's not something that I think anybody who works with students um, really wants to see and wants to have happening so it is something you know it's a, it's a change in a lot of our mindsets and I know talking with faculty and as well and teaching courses and classes um, yeah we really do miss the students and we're also missing kind of having an understanding of how they're doing too which is um, you know I can only imagine really what a student uh, like you I think you said as you were you were you know introducing the the segment here um, living at home now after getting excited to ready to go to residence. Yeah. Um, to She's university. not happy. <laughs> no, yeah, all courses being, you know, virtual, um, trying to make connections with peers in, in a program uh, through the online setting, um, being successful with different academics and those kinds of things as well. So it's uh, it's one thing for us to say, oh, you know, campus is a lot different, but um, yeah, the, the experience for students in first year and second year and all the way through has definitely been a huge adjustment for people as well. So let me ask you this, Patrick, what happens next year when, uh, you know, I'm guessing those first years that, you know, have made it into second will will be coming back to campus. Let's hope, uh, you know, things are at least normal with the with the vaccination and such. What do you what do you anticipate next September to be like? Um, I think I could make a lot of money if I, <laughs> if yeah. I knew the answer to that one. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure. I think it's going to be because you have these we'll, first year students. You have these yeah. first year students who have missed out on this experience. Absolutely. So, yes, are you going to have yeah. two years of first year students next year? I think for the I think for the city potentially yeah if 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 the university um, is able to open up and have in person classes and more things taking place on campus um, yeah we'll have a lot of new students uh, coming to to the university to the city of Guelph and so um, I think that's for universities across uh, across Ontario and and beyond um, so yeah I think there will be a huge you know influx of uh, new students um, a lot of uh, the programs that we would traditionally run for our first-year students um, might have a higher level of interest um, and opportunity there as we get students connected with different uh, clubs, organizations, supports on campus, those kinds of things. In it could be a heck of a frosh week. It could be a heck yeah. of a frosh week by next year. It might, you know what? It might be, it might be exciting for sure. Yeah, we'll see. So, getting back to residents right now, you know, I mean, obviously every university is different, but how how much of the residents' capacity now is full up? Is it does have students in it as opposed to empty? Uh, yeah. So we here at the University of Guelph, um, we have about 540 students in residence right now, um, and typically our capacity would be about 4,500, um, wow. and maybe a little bit uh, more than that. And so um, we're we're greatly reduced. We've uh, changed our practices to allow for um, two students per washroom ratio, all single rooms where where students are staying, 
um, making sure we've got supports in place for our students uh, that that uh, we can do some outreach and those kinds of things uh, as well. So uh, we were, I think, pretty proactive with regards to, or reactive with regards to how the, the pandemic influenced um, our students here on campus. Different universities have different approaches and they've done different things. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not mm-hmm. aware what all the different campuses have done. Um, but I know that a lot of them have been similar in terms of uh, uh, the approach and making sure single rooms are there and working quite closely with public health, uh, lots of consultations, and, and making sure we can provide as much of a safe environment as possible. Um, uh, is it accurate to say during an average school year that it's mostly first-year students in residence, or is that uh, how does it break down from year to year? Yeah, here at, here at Guelph, yes, absolutely. Our residences are uh, predominantly first year. Um, we do have a nice number of returning um, students as well, but no, we're probably, and I'm just guessing here, about 90% right. first year students coming into residence. Um, there's been, a, up until this year, a, a first year guarantee for students coming into the university, and, and uh, those types of things need to be looked at for you know incoming classes as, as well, depending on our capacity for the next uh, few years. Other universities have different setups um, as well, but I would say the majority of us do have uh, first years predominantly in our residences. So, you know, we've certainly heard lots, uh, Patrick, in regard to uh, mental health and such. How are the students doing? I... It daily probably changes. Um, I think uh, a lot of our students are, uh, a lot of them are doing well. Um, a lot of them, you know, from what I'm, you know, talking with students are uh, are struggling in certain areas um, as well. And, and some of it has to do with, you know, feeling a little isolated um, from peers and those kinds of things or struggling to kind of know how to get support um, as well. I think there is, uh, a sense of understanding as well um, in terms of, hey, this is something that the world is working through. Um, so there is that kind of uh, a sense of like, yeah, we're, we'll do do what we can given our circumstances and looking for kind of the guidelines of, of what we can work within. I know our students here on campus and, and the University of Guelph have been awesome in um, trying to understand uh, and work with within the expectations that are put forward. Um, so I think it, it is something that... Uh, to to an individual student, it's probably very different. Um, lots of students are going through lots of different things personally, not just you know um, yeah. thoughts connected to the pandemic, but other other life changes as well. Um, so that's I would say truthfully one of the challenges that we have had is um, when students are on campus and in residence, um, we see them daily. We get a chance to check in those informal conversations in the coffee line or um, before class, those kinds of things. Um, you get a chance to see and talk with students, whereas we don't have that opportunity as much this year. And so um, that's yeah. where a program like House Calls, we hope, will will uh, open some of those doors and have us a, a chance to really have those conversations with students. Last question, Patrick. Are you, Obviously, and we've talked about this many times in all different walks of life and in businesses, industries, education, healthcare, what have you, uh, obviously we've had to change things. You're, you're a perfect example of that and what you're saying. Are, are there anything, are any lessons to be learned out of this that may become the new norm moving forward at the university oh. level? Yeah, for sure. Um, no, I could spend another hour talking about all the lessons uh, and how we're going to be able to, I think, uh, improve student experiences moving forward and, and adjust our practices and uh, um, work towards the needs of our students, um, our staff as well that are, are working in, you know, on campus and in our residences. And also, um, I do think, you know, there's... Uh, we talk about everything kind of going virtual. Um, I think there is a place for that in the future. I think when it's all virtual, that makes things tough. But I think there is some um, opportunity there to build in flexibility for people's schedules, uh, students in classrooms and those kinds of things. Um, it's different when it's a choice, I think, versus more of a forced, we have to do this. Um, mm. So I think that there's some some of that. I think we've seen some definitely um, our you know our faculty and our outreach from students uh, experience has been you know um, pretty unique and, and lots of new opportunities there that uh, being introduced to classrooms as well. Um, 
and with outreach. So it's, it's, I think there's definitely some, uh, lots of lessons that can be learned um, as well. And then when you start looking at how we support our students, what's, uh, what is important for them um, in first, uh, first year or second year, uh, how can we better meet those needs as well um, moving forward. Um, so I do, I think there's going to be um, quite a few uh, changes that we'll see. Patrick Kelly has been with us, Associate Director of Residence Life at the University of Guelph. Uh, they provide a program to help new students uh, meet and transition from post-secondary into university life. And you can imagine the challenges once you bring in a global pandemic. Patrick, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. You too. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. And let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Lots to talk about in regard to the We Charity and also, uh, obviously, what is happening in Nova Scotia with uh, the fisheries dispute that is uh, ongoing through this weekend. Uh, here's what the Prime Minister had to say on the Bill Kelly Show this morning in regard to finding a solution in Nova Scotia. It's just going to require a level of, of goodwill and understanding on all sides, which is a little bit difficult right now with some of the, uh, the heated, uh, heated tempers. Uh, but we've um, uh, agreed to send more RCMP officers to the region to uh, keep, uh, keep things uh, a, little, uh, a little more safe. Uh, and we're, we're continuing to engage with this. I spent the weekend on calls uh, on this. Uh, our ministers are very active on this. There's a path through, and we're just trying to make sure that it's, uh, it's the right one and then it uh, that it gets into place in the right way. Let's bring in Michael Tobe no, uh, now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I hope you are as well, too, Scott. Thank you. Uh, obviously, this government uh, major platform was truth and reconciliation. Uh, we're certainly talking a lot about this now. It certainly seems to be more on the minds of Canadians and, and, and these stories finally starting uh, to come out. Uh, that being said, we still keep seeing problems, whether it's a BC pipeline, whether it's fisheries in, in Nova Scotia, whether it's uh, Caledonia here closer to home uh, outside of Hamilton. Are we making progress here? Well, look, it's obviously always been a historically a very difficult issue. Um, liberal and conservative federal governments have worked as hard as they possibly can with Native communities, Indigenous tribes, and others. And sometimes, obviously, there have been some successful routes and paths to discussing about, as you say, truth and reconciliation. Various trees have been made. But at the same time, when you know, there have obviously been periods of pretty severe division where... Let's put it this way. I mean, for conservatives, obviously, our relationship with Native Canadian community leaders has had its good moments, but also had its difficult periods as well. And that's just, you know, that's just a fact, unfortunately, historically. The Liberal government, who are Liberals in general, who have run the federal government for much longer in Canada, have obviously had, uh, you know, a longer series of negotiations and focus with the Native communities. Again, they've had their successes, and they've also had major failures as well. What's going on right now in Nova Scotia with the Mi'kmaq and the lobster fisheries, um, you know, some people have quoted as just it's disgusting violence, and I think that's actually probably a fair quote. And obviously, you know, something needs to be done to settle uh, the tension and ensure that people's blood pressure comes down a fair bit, because, one, it's not fair for any group who wants to fish in our oceans and has proper license or proper rights to do so, you obviously don't want them to, you know, be in trouble or have their lives in jeopardy, their businesses in jeopardy. We all completely understand that. But again, when there's all this sort of division and tension, it becomes very, very difficult, as most of your listeners will understand, to either A, settle the dispute, B, bring the violence to an end, or C, come to a proper resolution doesn't mean it won't happen, and I think that the interview that, that Bill Kelly did in his show earlier shows that certainly the government, the federal government, wants to resolve things quickly. We know that obviously in Nova Scotia they certainly do too, but it's just a very rough and difficult situation. But do I think it will be resolved at some point? Yes. Uh, why do you think this is happening now? This is this dates back to a treaty from 1999, and specifically yeah. the word the wording of what is moderate livelihood. That seems to be the debate here. How come it's had taken 20 years to come to a head? It's a good question. Um, you know, again, I don't live in Nova Scotia, so I couldn't 
say with complete certainty why this is happening. I think what probably has occurred, and it's just a guess on my part, is that there have been smaller amounts of tension over the past 21 years, and the firestorm has just started now based on, well, quite frankly, COVID-19 has certainly not helped the situation where people are under a lot of stress worrying about their families, their businesses, and their, their livelihoods in general. And I guess that, unfortunately, that causes some tension and problems. That occurs, obviously, in Nova Scotia, as it does in other provinces in this country. Nova Scotia is not unique. It's just that our, our national eye is focusing on them right now. And secondly, it's just human nature, unfortunately, to be competitive. And I would imagine that there probably has been, you know, a certain amount of competition or a need to get as much as they possibly can in terms of lobster fishing before the season, so to speak, is out. I mean, you obviously fish for lobster long into the year. That's kind of where we're a little lucky in Nova Scotia, as, as, you know, other parts of the world are lucky that way, too. But you obviously want to get as much out as you possibly can. And I think it's just created, unfortunately, a very volatile situation. And I think because of everything that the world is facing with the global pandemic, I think that probably made things worse to some degree and perpetuated tensions even more than they probably existed. But to believe that it was just you know, nothing in 99 to everything in 2020, I don't think is fair to say. And certainly people on the ground in Nova Scotia would know better mm. than you, yeah. I, and others. But I would imagine that this has probably been growing for some time. And based on some of the social media posts and some news media posts that I've been reading, I think there may be something to it. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I think this has been brewing for, for quite a while. Uh, just watching question period now, Michael, in the uh, We Charity controversy has come up again. Uh, obviously, this shows no signs of, of going away. There's information and questions that I, that I guess the opposition still wants answered. Uh, yeah. The NDP's Charlie Angus said, we don't need more committees. We need info on the committees that we have. Right. Your thoughts on his statements? Yeah, Charlie Angus and I don't agree a lot on politics, but he's absolutely right. I don't deny that. He's right. You know, Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyabra from two different sides of the political spectrum have been fighting pretty hard to ensure that the We Charity scandal not only remains in the public eye, but it's still discussed in the House of Commons. And it's also interesting because, as we know, the NDP recently aligned with the Liberals to shut down a particular committee that was going to look into a particular aspect of the We Charity. And I know that they made a whole bunch of reasons for it, which we don't have to go through the litany. I mean, it would, they were mostly excuses more than anything. But I think what this shows is that, at least in Charlie Angus's point, that, you know, and I don't know what his particular position was in that committee shutting down, he still wants to get to the bottom of this, as do many Canadians, no matter their political stripe. And when you hear statements, for example, of, you know, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, the wife of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Yes, getting this one-time-only speaking fee of $1,500, but then we find out when the books are open that she had been paid somewhere in the neighborhood of $24,000 over eight years, which obviously includes travel charges and other hotel expenses, etc. You know, that's not an enormous amount of money when you're talking about government spending, but when you multiply it to include... Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's mother, Margaret, who we know made an enormous amount of money from them. Plus, we've had things involving um, former finance minister Bill Morneau and two of his children as well. When you put all that together and other people who are obviously wrapped up to, in it, maybe on a lower level, but they're certainly there, it's just something that isn't going to go away. And I know the Liberals want it to go away. And they keep saying, no, 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 we've got to focus on COVID-19. That's what we have to focus on. Of course we have to focus on that, Scott. I think every Canadian knows that. But it doesn't mean that everything else then basically just disappears or falls off the table, so to speak. And as much as the Liberals would like the We Charity scandal to go away because it's hurt their personal popularity, and it's also hurt the Prime Minister's personal popularity at the same time, it's not going away anytime soon because it's a major scandal that needs to be investigated, every single aspect of it. Even if some of the roads, excuse me, lead to a dead end, which undoubtedly will happen and has happened already, that's the right thing to do. Because if any other government were in, were in place, Canadians would be calling for the same thing as well. Because you want to ensure that there's transparency, there's openness, and that every part about it is finally revealed. Because 
what we've learned about the Trudeau government and the the Kyleberger brothers, who run <clears throat> excuse me, who run We Charity, is that not everything was kosher. And when that's the case, you have to investigate. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, it's the sort of thing that uh, the more you try to hide it, I think the more it uh, attracts attention to itself. Uh, Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media Syndicate, a columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. As always, Michael, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. All right. Formally, uh, We Scare Hunger, Halloween for Hunger campaign. Yep, it's uh, students trying to do and make their mark and will, despite a pandemic at Halloween. But obviously, this is going to present some challenges this year. Let's bring in Alina Joseph, Senior Director, Halloween for Hunger, uh, from Sir Thomas More, and with us now. Alina, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, I am. How are you? I'm doing well. So how does this change everything for you this year? This is obviously a very big factor to overcome, but after many, many meetings and brainstorming ideas, we decided to shift our entire campaign to monetary donations and like having that run through an online system. So it's really easy for people to donate and we don't have to worry about the dangers of going out and collecting food because of COVID and all that. So explain to everybody who perhaps doesn't know what you would normally do every year, which you've done for the last 20 years. <laughs> For sure, yeah. So normally, um, Halloween for Hunger is a night food drive where hundreds of kids from our high school go out to houses um, at pre-planned routes and go out and collect canned goods basically throughout the night. We then bring all everything, all our donations back to our high school cafeteria where they're packed and loaded onto a truck and sent off to our local neighbor-to-neighbor center. So obviously this year, no collecting. Yeah, as far no as the physical canned goods of, of going on, you know, on people's stores, uh, doorsteps and such, that part of it is ceased for this year, correct? Yes, yeah. Oh, okay, so done. if we want to help, what do we do? How do we help? So we do have our online system. So we partnered with Neighbor to Neighbor, and they helped us create a online donation page, which can be found through the Neighbor to Neighbor website. And all you have to do is there's a little donation, donate now button. You put in your information and then you can donate however much you want. That is a great idea, but I feel so disappointed not only for the great cause and and the amount of food. And I know you stack it up in your cafeteria there at Sir yeah. Thomas More to the Raptors. But man, there's so many kids involved in this. What are they doing? What are the rest of the kids doing while this all moves online? Yeah, for sure. It was definitely sad for all of us to hear that we can't do, run our campaign to its full force this year. Um, so, however, this year, um, a lot of the kids at school don't get to help with the campaign because there's just so many restrictions and so many safety precautions. So this year, we're just encouraging everyone to donate and help spread the word more than physically doing things. But yeah, as far as helping, there's not much that they can do this year. Wow. Uh, well, I bet next year it'll be even bigger and better, won't it? Yeah, we're, that's what we're hoping for. <laughs> so, so once again, uh, Alina, if people want to make a donation, what do they do? Where do they go? So there is a um, website called Neighbor to Neighbor. Um, and on that website, there is a link to our donation page. And as soon as you click Donate Now, you can put in all your information and then donate however much you want. All right. Great idea. Well, congratulations, Alina. Way for you and the kids to be nimble. At least you're doing something. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Alina Joseph's with us, Senior Director, Halloween for Hunger. Just go to the Neighbor to Neighbor website and you can follow the links there. Uh, the 21st edition of Halloween for Hunger going online this year. And I know the kids are disappointed, but boy, they'll be back bigger than better uh, at Sir Thomas More next year. You can count on that. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.